Now I'm very happy to introduce Don Haggist. Don has been researching the Revolutionary War since the bicentennial period when he was a young reenactor. I first encountered him as the publisher of a series of period reprints on CD-ROMs, making the sources he studied available to other scholars. Today, Don is the managing director of the Journal of the American Revolution, which offers daily articles at allthingsliberty.com and a series of annual collections. So he's still helping other scholars research and publish their work. All the while, Don has been writing his own books, most of them on the British Army of the 1770s and 1780s. Among those are A British Soldier's Story, Roger Lamb's Narrative of the American Revolution, British Soldiers, American War, Voices of the American Revolution, and The Revolution's Last Men, the stories behind the photographs. Don has made himself one of the world's experts on the British Army of the Revolutionary Era. And yet Don still finds the time to maintain a career as an engineer, to contribute his humor to our newspaper comics pages, and to generously share his data on individual British soldiers whenever I drop a name to them. I'm honored to be able to introduce him today. Don's newest book, Noble Volunteers, sheds light on the diversity of the enlisted men of the British Army. Those soldiers have often appeared in many histories as identical redcoats in ranks, sometimes stereotyped as little better than criminals. Don's research has revealed much more about their demographics, skills, and life stories. Many of those men joined the army as a peacetime career, only to find themselves fighting a war against fellow Britons on another continent in often brutal conditions. In this hour, I expect Don to dispel some long-held myths about the other side of the American of the American Revolutionary War. So, welcome to you, Don Haggist. Uh, thank you very much for that flattering introduction, and I'm really excited to be here. Um, and thank you for everybody attending this. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about, as was implied by the introduction, and. I'm really excited about this new book called Noble Volunteers. Um, the book is about 330 pages long, so I'm going to spend about the first half of this talk just talking about the title. Um, because there's things about the title that are very important that characterize both the book itself and the soldiers that the book talks about. And you'll see the subtitle, The British Soldiers Who Fought the American Revolution. Well, this book is about the soldiers in the army. And when I say soldiers, I refer to the rank and file men, not the officers. If you want information about British army officers, you'll have to look to another book, not this one. Although it does contain a lot of information written by officers about the common soldiers and about the relationship between officers and soldiers. So when I say soldiers, I'm talking about the private soldiers, drummers, fifers, corporals, and sergeants. Those are pretty much the only ranks you get in the British Army during this time period. We do address men of those ranks who became officers. That was not a very common thing, but it was not unknown during the time for men to work his way up through the ranks. And the book focuses on infantry because in the American Revolution, the vast majority of British soldiers who fought in America were infantrymen. There were a few cavalry soldiers and some artillery soldiers, most of them were infantry. And a lot of the material in the book is common to any soldier in the British Army, regardless of whether they're a foot soldier or a horse soldier or what have you. But there are a lot of things that are very specific to infantry. Um, also, the book covers only the British redcoats, the members of the British regular army. It doesn't talk about loyalists. It doesn't talk about Germans or Hessians or Native American allies or anybody else. So it's very specific subject matter, but it is the very core of the army that fought here. And the emphasis in this book is on diversity, not commonality. Sometimes you get studies that try to look at a big population and look at what everybody in it had in common. And what I find when I study these soldiers is they're all individual people and you can't just do a broad brush um, perspective and say, well, most soldiers are usually this or that happened because there were so many different careers and different possibilities in the army. Um, I show a couple of other titles of two very good books, just to give an example of the difference of approach. We have a uh, Redcoat, the British soldier in the age of horse and musket. And we have the British soldier in America. These are both really good books, but I look at the titles and I say, the British soldier, like there was only one. Well, there were a lot more than that. And, and 
the real essence of this population of soldiers is found in how these people were different from each other more than in how they were the same as each other. Now, the main title of the book is Noble Volunteers. And I had a lot of people question that title when I was working it up. And I said, well, here, here's why. There were four ways you could get into the British Army during the time period of concern. Now, we're focused on the American Revolution, which began in the fighting began in 1775, and it ended in 1783. Well, most of the British soldiers who fought here were career soldiers, which means that they joined the army in the two decades before or during the revolution. So they joined the army in the 1760s and 1770s, some even in the 1750s. There were four ways you could get into the British army as a common soldier during this time period. You could enlist voluntarily. You could be born in the army. So your father's a soldier and you were born and raised following him. You could get into the army as an alternative to prison, and you could be pressed into the army. I'm gonna talk about each of these four things, but in reverse order of importance, because a, a great many history books either get these things wrong or they muddle them up in a way that makes it hard to distinguish them from each other. So in this book, Noble Volunteers talks a lot about how men could get into the army. And again, we're going in reverse order of importance. So the least important in terms of understanding the army as a whole is this thing called impressment. And this is the picture that a lot of people have, this term press gangs, the idea of being dragged off the streets and thrust into the ranks of the army. That could happen during the American Revolution, but only for a two year period between June 1778 and May 1780. Now, remember that fighting broke out in 1775. And at that time, there were a lot of soldiers already in the army. None of them were pressed into the army. It wasn't legal for the British army to press people into the army until 1778. And then the law was repealed in 1780. So just this two year period during this much longer war. And even in that strict um, in that narrow time period, there were strict rules. There were limited locations where men could be pressed. There were only certain times of year when it could be done. The upshot of this is during that two year period, when there was a lot of recruiting going on during this war, no more than about 10% of the men recruited for the army during that time were pressed. Now this is not 10% of the entire army. This is 10% of the new recruits raised during that little two year period which means that about 5% of the recruits sent to America during this time period were pressed, which results in being fewer than 1% of all the British soldiers who served in America during this war. So far, I found only nine regiments known to have any pressed men at all out of about 50 regiments served in the revolution. And the most soldiers I found in any one regiment that were pressed is 37. Now, a regiment is about 500 men. And the most I know pressed men in any regiment that served in the British Army in the American Revolution is 37. Bear in mind that if you're interested in the British Army in Boston, they were there in 1774, 75, 76. There were no pressed men in the army then because it wasn't legal for most of the war to press men in the army. Even when it became legal, only a very tiny portion of the men who served in America were pressed men. Next way to get in the army, again, going in reverse order of importance, alternative to prison. Well, this was true that if you were charged with a crime and convicted of it, a magistrate could give you the option of going into the army instead of going to the prison. But it wasn't just any old criminal who was offered this path. It was only men who were charged with petty larceny or misdemeanors. So there's a few examples. Again, there's a lot more detail about all this stuff in the book, but we have crimes like bigamy, petty theft, burglary, failure to pay child support, not severe violent crimes. Um, not being a bunch of complete idiots, the British military officers knew that men who failed in society weren't likely to succeed well in the army either. So they didn't want the violent hardened criminals but men who had just made some bad choices and may be able to improve themselves if given other options, 
might work out as good soldiers. But even if a magistrate gave a man this option of joining the army, the army itself had the right of refusal. So it wasn't just a case of shunting men from the prisons into the army. Rather, the army could say, well, no, we only want these certain ones. Um, we only know of a few hundred cases during the time of the American Revolution when this actually happened. And this is for the whole British army. Only a few hundred men were um, joined the army instead of going to prison. And we don't even know if all those men served in America. Um, and it's also important to recognize that this was voluntary. So this was an option that a magistrate offered to a criminal and he could refuse it if he wanted to. The result is that there were hardly any criminals in the British army. There were a few, but not very many, not enough to characterize the army as a population. So how else could you get in the army? Well, you could be born in the army. And this was actually a pretty good path for, um, for the army itself and for the young man. Um, remember the British army was largely made up of career soldiers. Um, many of these men were married, often their wives accompanied them wherever the regiment went. And that means children are born wherever the regiment went. Some were born in Boston. Um, some of these young men, when they were old enough, went into the ranks of soldiers. And the army liked this. They said, from this little nursery, some excellent non-commissioned officers may be produced. Well, of course, because these are young people who had spent their entire lives in a military environment. By the time they were ready to be a soldier, they understood it. We don't know how many were born in the army. I've only been able to document a few dozen and the book talks about why this is so. But again, proportionally, I don't see where this would be any more than five to 10% of the soldiers in the army at any given time. And it's also important to recognize that this was also voluntary. Just because you were the child of a soldier didn't mean you were required to join the army when you were old enough. It just means that that was one of your options. So who does this leave? We've said that there were not many men in the army who were pressed, not many who were um, criminals who were given the option of joining the army, not all that many born in the army. Where did all these soldiers come from? Well, they were volunteers. So we have hardly any pressed men, hardly any convicts, hardly any children. So that means most of the men are volunteers and most of them in fact are career soldiers. So they joined the army, not for a stint or a hitch or some fixed period of time. They just joined the army and they serve until they're no longer fit for service. So why would a man do this? Well, here's a couple of recruiting, uh, some recruiting literature from the time. On the one side of the screen, we see a recruiting poster from the 45th Regiment of Foot. And they say, we're looking not just for any old person, we want all gentlemen volunteers who are able and willing to serve his majesty and who have courage enough to fight for their country. Um, on the other side is text from a newspaper ad put in place by the 33rd Regiment of Foot shortly after the war in America began. They said they were looking for any able-bodied young man who is fired with ambition has a roving disposition and whose spirit soars above the dull sameness of staying at home. And it gave a lot of other details about what to do if you fit in that criteria. But then it cautioned, we want only those men who will be taken who promise to be a credit to their officers and an honor to their country. Ah, so they don't want just anybody. They want particular men with roving dispositions and soaring spirits. Well, well who wouldn't feel that was true about themselves, right? Um, there's another poster by the 88th Regiment of Foot from uh, the middle part of the Revolutionary War. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it starts off and it says, arouse all Britons for the honor of, oops, I'm sorry. It says, now is the moment, my noble-minded countrymen. Now is the crisis of our country's fate. Fly to the standard and on and on it goes. And down near the bottom, it's got this passage that says, the sons of freedom are alone worthy to support the honor of old England and the conduct of the noble regiment of British volunteers shall prove that Englishmen never wanted courage to defend their wives, their sweethearts, or their firesides. Well, that's wonderful language, and that's inspiring language to young men who might be farm laborers or, or working at fairly dull trades like like weaving or wool combing or something where they may never get to leave their hometown but now they see a poster like this and the army wants 
people who have the courage to defend their wives and sweethearts and firesides. And this also gave me the language that I needed for book title, the Noble Regiment of British Volunteers. So I took noble volunteers to characterize these people who responded to the calls for voluntary enlistment as a career in the army, which again was the majority of soldiers who fought in America. So why enlist? It's not just about recruiting language, right? Well, I would like to know why every single man who served in America enlisted, but unfortunately, hardly any of them wrote down what their reasons were. So I don't know because I can't interview any of them. 35 soldiers did write their reasons down. And that just number 35 is exciting for me because when I first put together this slide back in November when the book came out, that was 32. And ongoing research has revealed three more since then. Most of these men were employed or they had some other means of support. So the notion that um, people would join because they had no other alternative isn't supported by the small number of actual testimonies we have of why people joined. In fact, not a single person who I found so far who wrote down the reason why they joined the army gave unemployment as the reason for doing so. Now, 35 is not a good statistical sample when some 50,000 British soldiers served in America. But so far, if I can't even find a single case where somebody says, well, I was unemployed, then I have to question whether that was a big motivating factor or not. So what reasons do people give? Well, as we might expect, reasons are very individualistic. And the important thing here is that there are reasons that you wouldn't be able to discern by looking at metadata like employment trends or other social factors. I'm just gonna list off a few and I'm not gonna say all the 35 of those, but we have, here's a man named William Crawford. He joined the 12th Regiment of Dragoons, which did not fight in America, but then when war broke out in America, he volunteered to join an infantry regiment and he did come over and fight here. And he said he joined because the King's Golden Guineas in the form of a bounty won my heart. Okay, well, you get an enlistment bounty, which is one or two months pay up front. And that's, that's a pretty seductive thing if you're working the mundane trade and want something different in your life. A man named Robert Hudson joined the 20th Regiment of Foot. <clears throat> and he wrote that he and his friends, by the fair speeches of the British officers, brought them to believe that the army was the best place. All right, so the recruiting language convinced some people. John Pink was a tailor, <clears throat> gainfully employed, but he was persuaded by a young man belonging to the army that the army was a very advantageous place for a tailor. And it turns out he was right. And the book talks about tradesmen and how they could do well in the army by practicing their trade as well as being a soldier. Robert Hall joins the army, not from want, but from inclination. William Burke said, I had a wish to become a soldier. A man named who gave only his first initial wrote, I could not resist it, though I could give no particular reason. Well, again, nothing surprising here, but some young men just feel like it would be really cool to join the army and be a soldier. That's just what they want to do, even if they can't give a particular reason. Thomas Sullivan enlisted in the army to satisfy an inclination strongly bent upon rambling. So he knew he wasn't going to be able to travel anywhere or have any adventures, just staying at home. Andrew Scott joined the 80th Regiment of Foot because it afforded me an opportunity of seeing the world. A man named Valentine Duckett joined because he said my stepmother and I could not agree. Now imagine that a young man, his father remarries, he doesn't get along with his stepmother, he runs away to join the army. It's probably never happened since, right? Actually, it probably happens all the time to this day. Jonathan Sawyer said he joined the army because he was disappointed in courtship. And a man named James Andrew joined the regiment to be freed from the clamors of a wife. So we do see some trends here. We've got some people who, who joined just because the fiery recruiting language lured them in. We have some place, uh, some men who just felt that they wanted to join the army and some people who had domestic situations that they wanted to get away from. In all these cases, we wouldn't be able to figure these things out analytically. We only know because the people actually wrote their reasons down. For this reason, all of the writing I do in this book, I try to present primary source information 
um, to explain what was going on, on in the army and not just use assumptions or try to analyze a bunch of data and figure something out. I look for what the information really tells me rather than what I think it might be saying. There were three periods of enlistment during the army. I actually have three chapters in this book all devoted to recruiting in the army. And I did that because there are other books about British soldiers that just lump recruitment into one single topic and they muddle things up from different time periods when the differences are actually very important. So we have men who joined the army before the war began. They didn't join the army to go fight a war in America. They joined the army and they served for some number of years. Then a war started and they had were called to fight it. These men joined the army as a career. These men stayed in the army till they were no longer fit for service. Now fit for service during this time period in infantry means that you can uh, be roused at about nine or 10 o'clock at night and then get on a boat and cross a river and then walk 20 miles from Boston to Concord, Massachusetts, do some things there and then walk all the way back. Oh, by the way, while being shot at, that's being fit for service. You walk a nice 40 mile round trip in a day and you can spend your summers sleeping on the ground in a tent and what have you. Well, men typically joined the army in their early 20s and served until their mid to late 40s. Once the war began, now the, um, stepping back a second, the majority of British soldiers who fought in America were these soldiers who joined before the war began and then fought in the war. And many of them continued in the army afterwards, as we'll see. Once the war began, there were some additional incentives. Um, enlistment bounties improved. You could be discharged when the war was over. So you were no longer required to serve until you were no longer fit for service. And you could get a land grant after discharge. This is 100 acres of land. It's a pretty strong incentive for a young farm laborer in Scotland, say, who's working on rocky soil in bad weather on somebody else's land, as that is his only prospect in life. Suddenly a recruiter says, if you join the army and serve in this war, when it's over, we'll give you 100 acres of land. It's liable to be rocky soil in bad weather on the coast of Nova Scotia, but it's your land. Very enormous incentive for a man to join the army during the war. And the enlistment bounties were higher. And three years after the American Revolution began, for England, it became a global war. France joined the war, Spain joined the war, Holland joined the war. And now there was a much bigger need to recruit soldiers. So more recruiting incentives, higher enlistment bounties, still have the land grants, still have the option of discharge after the war. Um, most of the men who were recruited for the British Army during the American Revolution didn't serve in America during the war. They were sent to other places, which to Great Britain were much more important. So we have these three periods of enlistment. And again, I break them down because the reasons for enlistment and the kind of training and the way soldiers were deployed during these periods changed. They were not the same, so we don't lump them all together. I divided the book into three parts. The peacetime army that's preparing for war, all these soldiers who were already in the army, they came to America and they actually came here not to fight a war, but to try to prevent a war from starting. And all those soldiers who came to Boston in 1774, they didn't come here to fight. They came here to try to prevent the fight from starting. Then the bulk of the book is the wartime army. And the third part of it deals with what happens with soldiers when their careers are over, whether it's during the war or whether it's after the war. For a section of the book, I'm going to just give a little bit of highlights of some of the sorts of things that are in the book. We can't talk about all of it here. There's a great deal of detail. But we talk about peacetime recruiting, why men join the army when there is no war going on. A lot of basics about the army, the different the proportions of English and Irish and Scots and foreigners who are in the British army. It gives background on ranks and pay and training. And what does it mean to be a corporal in the army compared to being a private soldier? Um, talks about how the army trained in Boston before the war began, how the soldiers prepared for what may be a fight. It talks about their physical fitness, their hygiene, target practice, uh, 
regiments that have been deployed in different places throughout the British Empire, all of a sudden trying to work together for the first time. And I mentioned this term target practice, one, one of the many little details in the book. Again, just a small example of the many kinds of topics. Um, there are some literature that not only says that British soldiers didn't aim their weapons, but it actually, there are some sources that will even tell you that they were taught not to aim their weapons, which is kind of silly. The British army had been using firearms for a hundred years by this time, and they had long since figured out that you're more likely to hit something if you aim at it. And we demonstrate this because British soldiers in Boston before the war began spent time doing what they called firing at marks. This is where we get the term marksmanship. It was target practice. And it's described in the book, the British training manual that talks about how to aim the musket every single British soldier was taught with, says right in it, the left eye shut and look along the barrel with the right eye from the boots pin to the muzzle. Um, if you've met a historical reenactor or you meet one and you talk to him about his musket and the different parts of it, he's liable to say there's a little tiny piece of metal way up there on the muzzle. Um, and a reenactor is liable to call this thing a bayonet lug because the bayonet engages onto it to lock onto it. But this is a picture from a period training manual that identifies that little piece. It's item E. And during the time period, British soldiers were taught to call this thing a sight which really suggests that it was used for aiming. British soldiers in America before the war began in the four months before hostilities broke out in Boston in April of 1775 had typically fired about 80 rounds per man of target practice. If you fired a flintlock muzzle loading weapon, you realize that that's, a, that's a, quite a lot of shots to fire. That's plenty enough to become pretty proficient. Um, at firing these things and hitting targets. So the soldiers, even though they weren't hoping a war came, they were practicing for war and they'd done quite a lot of practice. And again, this is just one of the many facets of it. Second part of the book talks about the wartime army. We have how recruiting and training changed during the war, how the British Army's tactics on the battlefield changed during the war. We talk a great deal about where soldiers lived. Were they in barracks? Were they in tents? Were they just wrapped up in blankets on the cold ground? Were they in barns and outbuildings? Turns out they were in all of these things, depending on exactly the time and the place. Food and hygiene and health, all the things that go into being a soldier in a war in a foreign land are talked about in this section of the book. What did soldiers do when they weren't on duty? How did they spend their free time? We don't have a lot of information about this, but we have some, and it's all packed into this book. We talk about how the war changed pay and promotion and career paths and things. So it's just one little example. Again, this is like one or two pages out of this whole middle section of the book. If you were to just ask around on people's opinions and say, how likely were you to survive a wound from battle during this time period? We'd probably guess that medical procedures were fairly crude and the chance of getting a disease were quite high. So odds are pretty good that if you got wounded in battle, you're gonna die. Well, that's a great assumption. So I look at actual data rather than trying to make assumptions like that. As one example, I picked the 22nd Regiment of Foot on August 29th, 1778, because they fought in a big battle right then, and they suffered a lot of casualties, and then they didn't do any fighting for a while after that. They had, in this one battle, out of about 400 men engaged, 11 killed and 50 to 56 wounded, depending on which account you read, which is quite a lot for the time period. And the fact that they then didn't fight at all for several months afterwards allows me to look and say, what about all those wounded men? How did they do? Well, we don't have a specific listing of the names of the men who were wounded. We only know that there were 50 of them, and we don't know which 50. But we do have roles that tell us which men in the regiment died for every single month of the war. Now, we don't know what they died of, so we don't know which of the men who were wounded were men who died. But we can at least look and say, well, what's the maximum possible number of wounded who died? Because we know all the ones who died. Well, in the four months after the war, we, after this battle, we know that one man died of wounds. There is a, a record that tells us that. And then 
only three other men in the regiment died for any reason during the next four months after this battle. I don't know if they died of wounds or not, but only three men died out of 50 to 56 who were wounded. I know for sure that one died of wounds and the most possible that could have died of wounds is four, which means that all the rest of them survived and they must have recovered from the wounds. That's way more than I expected. One of the most wonderful things doing research is when you actually find information that proves your own assumptions wrong. I assumed that this number would be much higher. When I actually look at real data, it turns out wounds were highly survivable. Now, I don't know why they were so survivable because they don't go into a deal of detail on the medical practices, but one way or another, if you were wounded, if you were a British soldier, you were wounded in battle during the American Revolution, your odds were extremely good of surviving those wounds. How about that? Ending careers. Well, there were several ways you could end your career in the British Army. It said that there was no fixed term of enlistment for most men. So you served till you were, well, how long did you serve? Well, you served until you either died, that tends to end your career pretty quickly, or until you desert from the army, that's also ends your career in a hurry. There were men who were prisoners of war, and that doesn't automatically end your career, but then when the war ends and all the prisoners are released, there are a lot of men who just never came back. And in most cases, we don't have any idea what happened to them because they didn't come back. There's no record of them. They're just gone. Well, we do know that their career ended. Um, we have soldiers who are displaced. Imagine that uh, you're a British soldier and your regiment is in the area around New York and you do get wounded in battle. You go into a hospital. It takes you several months to recover. In that time, your regiment is sent to the West Indies. Then you... You're in a hospital in New York where you cover from your wounds. Well, what happens to you then? Your regiment is gone. Where do you go? The book talks about these things. It may be halfway through the war and you're no longer fit for service. Remember, we have men fighting in the American Revolution who joined the army in the 1750s. By the time the 1770s are here, they've been in the army 20 years or more. Um, they might be no longer fit for service, even though the war is still going on. What happens to those men? What happens to men who are discharged from the army during the war and after the war? Well, I talk about all these things and try to use a lot of individual cases of individual people who, who experience these different situations. But here's one example. 1783, the war is over. The British army is still in America. They haven't been sent home yet, even though a peace treaty has been signed. Now the army is trying to figure out how do we move all the people from North America to wherever else we can send them. Um, so the 22nd Regiment of Florida, again, September 1783, they're preparing to go back to Great Britain. They discharged 66 men in America. There's a force reduction. We did all this recruiting during the war. Now the war is over. We don't need all these people. We're in New York. 66 men were just going to say, you're done, your service obligation's over, you can go anywhere you want to and do anything you want. Well, what happens to these 66 men? Well, to, again, my surprise, as much as anybody else's surprise, these men who are completely free to go and do anything they want, and they're in America, this new land of milk and honey, 47 of them immediately, within the next day or two, turn around and rejoin the British Army. They enlist in another British regiment that's going to Canada, still a British possession. So instead of taking the opportunity to be out of the army and done with their service, even though they fought a war, they turn around and join another British regiment that is still on an overseas deployment. Why would they do that? Well, it turns out, I don't know, because no man who did this wrote down their reason why they did it. So I can only guess. One supposition may be that, hey, they get another enlistment bounty. You know, they, get, they get some cash out of the deal. Um, they're already in the army. They know this. They understand this. Um, so why not? It's a, it, the point with looking at a piece of data like this is to say, the army must not be a terrible career if such a high proportion of men who are told, you don't need to stay in the army anymore if you don't want to turned around and said, oh, but we do want to, and they re-enlisted. 
couldn't have been as bad a career as some sources will make it out to be. Okay, we have four more slides here. So we're on the home stretch. I just want to introduce you to four British soldiers. And again, the point here is to show some diversity in the kinds of soldiers who fought in America. Here's a man named Benjamin Noble. He was born in 1748, Sandwich, Bedfordshire. He's one of the many, many dozens of men who they talk about in this book. He was a laborer. And in as much as he was not able to sign his own name, I assume that he was illiterate. He enlisted in the 14th Regiment of Foot in 1765. That regiment went to Nova Scotia the year, next year. And then they came to Boston in 1768. They were in Boston at the time of the Boston Massacre, but they weren't involved with the Boston Massacre. After that, they were sent down to the Caribbean and Benjamin Noble was wounded in a little known war called the Carib War in 1773. A large number of British soldiers who fought in the American Revolution were veterans of this war that had occurred only two years before the war. And this particular man was wounded. Well, after that, his regiment was sent to Virginia. And in 1775, Benjamin Noble was wounded at a battle in Virginia called Great Bridge. Very, very important battle in the American Revolution that many people haven't even heard of. I encourage you to look it up. So now we have this poor guy. He's been in the army for 10 years. He's been wounded twice in two different wars. But rather than be sent back to Great Britain, he gets when his regiment gets sent back to Great Britain, he gets transferred into another regiment, the 44th Regiment of Foot, and he's put in the Grenadier Company, one the, the most elite portion of the regiment. The 44th Regiment, at the time he joined it, was operating in New Jersey in the area of Trenton. He was sent to join his regiment when it was down there in New Jersey. And he went with another batch of recruits and transfers from other regiments. And they got into New Jersey in the town of Princeton on January 3rd, 1777. So without even joining his regiment yet, he with this group of recruits and transfers gets mixed up in the Battle of Princeton and he gets wounded for a third time. Now, 12 years in the army, wounded three times, you would think that he might get sent home or have be able to get discharged from the army, but he continued to serve through December of 1790. And then he received a pension when he left the army, which again was a very common thing. The book talks a lot about the pension system. Um, you look at a career like that and it sounds quite remarkable, but one of the challenges with putting together a slide like this is not finding a man with a career like this, but figuring out which of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of British soldiers with careers like this to talk about. Um, because this was a very common type of career. Men got wounded many times and stayed in the ranks and fought in additional battles and additional wars. James Renison was born in Kendall, County Westmoreland, 1743. He's five foot six inches tall, hazel eyes, brown hair, a swarthy complexion, and a round visage to shape of his face. He was a weaver before he joined the army, and he joined the 59th Regiment at foot in 1759. By 1775, he was in Boston, and he was a sergeant in this regiment. And he was wounded in the thigh on April 19, 1775. Most of you, I think, know what happened there. Well, he was wounded, but he wasn't wounded so badly that he was unable to participate in the Battle of Bunker Hill just two months later. His regiment was sent back to Great Britain at the end of 1775, but his war wasn't over yet. In 1778, France and Spain joined the war, and his regiment, which had fought in Boston, was now sent to Gibraltar which was um, besieged in 1778, one of the longest sieges in British military history. It lasted four years. And this fellow, this veteran of Lexington and Concord was there for the entire time. He was discharged from the army in 1788 at the age of 45 after 29 years of service and he received a pension. And a sergeant's pension was, was a reasonable amount of money. He could, he could live on that. So what do you suppose a man like this does now? 45 years old, he's got his pension. He does what many, many hundreds of thousands of British soldiers did, what veterans of the American Revolution did repeatedly. He joined the army. He joined the 6th Regiment of Foot. 
stayed in it for three more years. He was discharged again in 1791. And then he did what British soldiers in this time period do. He joined the army again, 95th Regiment of Foot. Somewhere in his whole career, we don't know when he lost his middle finger. Um, hopefully a recruiter didn't shoot it off. But uh, he was discharged again in 1797. And then he did what British soldiers do. He joined the army again. He joined what's called an invalid corps. This is a corps that served at coastal installations in Great Britain. He's no longer able to go on overseas deployments, but he can still do the army some good. So he joins an invalid battalion. He was discharged now in 1802 at the age of 59 after more than 40 years in the army. And then he was actually called up to serve one more time, but they decided that now he was no longer fit for further service. Again, this career, he said, wow, that's pretty amazing, but that's not unusual at all. This is a typical kind of career for a British soldier who fought the American Revolution. This war in America lasted for eight years. This James Renison's army career lasted over 40 years. Uh, two more to go. Here's Peter Federheim. That name doesn't sound very British, and it turns out it's not British. He was born in Grimstadt, Germany. Five foot nine inch high, light brown hair, gray eyes, fresh complexion. He was a Lutheran, and in 1775, early 1776, he was recruited for British service. Now, he wasn't a Hessian. He wasn't in the a German army that was then sent to support the British army in America. He actually was recruited by a British recruiting officer to serve in a British regiment. He arrived in America in October 1776 and joined the 17th Regiment of Foot. And he was captured at Stony Point in 1779. He was exchanged after about 18 months. Then he was captured again at Yorktown. And after about another 18 months as a prisoner of war, he was repatriated at the end of the war. After which he stayed in the 17th Regiment. He could have left the army when the war was over, but he didn't. He advanced in rank. He was discharged in 1802 and received a pension. And then what does he do? He does what British soldiers do. He enlisted in the British Army again, discharged in 1806, went into another British Army Corps called the Veteran Battalion, discharged in 1810. So he spent 35 years in the British Army. When he was finally discharged the last time, he signed his name as Peter Featherham. So he's not only in the British Army this whole time, but completely anglicized, this young man from Germany, to the point of signing his name using an English spelling rather than the German one. Last man, Thomas Plum. I think he's the last man. I hope so. Um, don't know how old he was or when he was born, unfortunately, but we do know he was from Cornwall. We know that he was married and his wife and child stayed behind in England. He joined the 22nd Regiment of Foot in 1765, arrived in Boston shortly after the Battle of Bunker Hill. His regiment was sent to Rhode Island in 1776. And from there, he wrote this letter in the middle of 1777, and he signed it. Here's a picture of the letter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he signed the letter, my kind respects to my loving wife and child, Uncle Wood, Molly, and little William, and all inquiring friends. And it's just very touching. It's kind of friendly. It's also sad to know that the letter was never delivered. This is, came from a packet of captured correspondence that eventually found its way into the British National Archives. But even sadder than that is that this man, Thomas Plum, was killed in battle one year later at the Battle of Rhode Island in August 1778. Here's a signature, Thomas Plum, Soldier, 22nd Regiment, Captain McDonald's Company. Um, one last man, I'll be really quick with this guy. Um, born in Ireland, 1755, he joined the army in 1774. He was captured at Saratoga. But he escaped from prison outside of Boston. And oh, he enlisted in the 16th Massachusetts Regiment. All right, so he was a patriot. He was smitten by the cause of freedom and independence. Oh, maybe he wasn't. He deserted from the 16th Massachusetts Regiment in 1779. So maybe he wasn't a freedom-loving patriot. Oh, oh, maybe he was a freedom-loving patriot. He joined the army in October of that year. 
And he was in Bergen County, New Jersey, still in his regiment in September 1780, and he deserted again. All right, so where does this man loyalty fly? He deserted from the British Army, he deserted twice from the American Army. When he deserted, in northern New Jersey, he got into British-held New York, and he joined the British regiment again. So now he has served on both sides more than once. And when his regiment went back to Great Britain in November 1783, he was still a British soldier, but he deserted yet again in June of 1784. Don't know what happened to him after that. There are a surprising number of men who served on both sides during the American Revolution, some more than once on each side. Um, so he's one of many stories. Again, the book is called Noble Volunteers. It talks about all kinds of things in this talk. It has a lot more of these kinds of personal stories as well as more generalized information about what it was like to be a British soldier during the American Revolution. If you're interested in a signed copy of it, there's a link here that will stay up here on this slide for a little while. Um, this is a local independent bookstore here in Providence, Rhode Island. If you buy the book from anywhere, I encourage you to get it from an independent bookseller or a historical site. These people need us more than ever now. If you like these stories of individual British soldiers, I have a blog with lots of them on it. Um, email if you have any questions for me. And the Journal of the American Revolution is at allthingsliberty.com. And I'm happy now to take any questions you might have. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Don. Uh, indeed, we do have some questions. Um, I'm gonna start with Joseph Hearn, who asked about how many Irishmen were in the British Army at this time, and what were the, uh, uh, the question, the uh, religious aspects of that? Were they all Protestant? Okay, that, that's a great question. Um, I can't give you an exact figure, but how many, um, if you look at individual British regiments, you have some proportion of British, some proportion of Scottish, or, sorry, some portion of English, some portion of Irish, and some portion of Scottish in any given regiment. Welsh are not given a separate category of military documents at this time. Um, so, we can see for a lot of regiments approximately how many Irishmen were in it. And the number proportion varies regiment to regiment depending on where each regiment had been and, and the recruiting it did because each regiment did its own recruiting. But typically in a British regiment, you'll find somewhere between 5% and 25% Irishmen. It varies a great deal regiment to regiment. Um, the religious aspects of it, that's a neat question. When you joined the British Army, you had to sign an attestation that said that you were a Protestant. This was in peacetime enlistment before the war began. And as well as I can discern, people, neither the recruiters nor the recruits cared too much about that little detail, because we have plenty of examples of Irish Catholics who joined the British Army before the American Revolution, even though it technically was not legal. And then after the, after the revolution began, that requirement was waived. So now Irish Catholics could be enlisted in the army. But what we find more than anything in those cases where we can get into religi religiosity of British soldiers is that this was not a very religious bunch of people. The book talks a lot about religion and the army. Well, not a lot, but there, there is material in it. But overall, we have a lot of people joining the army as young men who just aren't very involved in their religion one way or the other. So we get Irish Catholics who just, yeah, I'll sign this thing saying I'm Protestant and the recruiter doesn't care and the recruit doesn't care. And, 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 and off they go to not be particularly religious while they're in the army. Okay, uh, Joseph Hearn and also Martha Brest have asked about another part of the British empire and how many men it supplied to the regular British army, and that's North America, those colonies. How many of the uh, British redcoats were in some way American at the start of the war or later? Okay, and that's a great question too. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a way to give a, even an imprecise figure on, on how many American-born men were in the British Army during this time period. We know there were some because we've got a lot of individual cases. 
British regiments were in North America from the end of the French and Indian War through the American Revolution. So regiments that were in New York and New Jersey in 1770 and 1771, they could recruit anywhere they wanted to. And Americans did join the ranks. Again, unfortunately, we don't know how many because we just don't have enough detailed records to tell us that. At least a few percent, some of them were officers as well. There were a moderate number of American born officers in the British army. Once the war began, most American born men who wanted to join the British army after the war started were formed into regiments of the loyalists. So they were serving in the war only for the time of the war. And then those regiments were disbanded when the war was over. Um, so I can't give you a percentage. If I had to take a, just a wild guess, I'd say, yeah, you might find 5% or so in a given regiment. But it depended a great deal on where the regiment had been stationed. A regiment that was in America before the war began for an extended period certainly had a higher proportion of American-born men in it than a regiment that was in the British Isles for several years before the war began. Okay. Erica Twardzik asks, how aware of or supportive were the general British soldiers of the British war aims during the war? And did that change over time? Did their motivations change over time? How, how can we get to that question? That is, that's a terrific question. And, and here's the unfortunate answer. I always tell people the data tells me what, but the data doesn't tell me why. So when we say, grab a question like, how supportive were British soldiers of the American cause? My answer is I only know for the individual soldiers who wrote down what they thought about the American cause. And the bad thing there is British soldiers just didn't write down what they thought about the American cause. They were soldiers in the army. They came to fight in America. They did what they had to do. They often wrote about their individual experiences but they wrote very little about what they thought about their experiences and, and being in America. They had a poor opinion of the way Americans fought the war, doing um, sniping them, um, popping at them from distances and not trying to do anything with any military objective other than just trying to kill an individual soldier here and there. So you find occasional opinions, but. But there just isn't very much writing that talks about that. We could look at, at something like desertion and say, well, this many people deserted, so they must have supported the American cause. They went foot on the other side. But, but we get in, in, in the book, there are examples of people who, they really look more like opportunists. They're deserting from the army more to get away from problems they're having in the army than because they support the other side. And they're just as likely to desert from the American army as from the British army. So, so sadly, we can't really tell what's going on inside these people's heads. Much as we'd like to, there's just not enough people writing down what they were thinking. And I never want to try to guess what another person is thinking or was thinking. Okay, thank you. Uh, you just answered a question from an anonymous attendee about how many British soldiers deserted to join the American army. Um, that same person or another anonymous attendee, again, I'm, I'm going to take a leaf from your book and say, we can't know for sure, uh, <laughs> says that it's, it's surprising to learn that the army was accepting deserters back into the ranks. Uh, can you talk about that policy? Uh, sure. And there wasn't a singular policy there. Again, the book talks a lot more about desertion and court martials and military crimes and whatnot. <laughs> but there are there are different ways and motivations why a soldier deserted and different ways that they come back to the army. It's one thing to be missing from the army for a time period and then show up again of your own volition and have a reasonably good story about why you were gone. And it's quite another to disappear from the army and then be caught while you're trying to hide and be dragged back to the army. Um, so men were tried by court marshals and a lot of these things were evaluated. When the man left, did he take his clothing with him? Did it seem like he was trying to get away? Or do we have reason to believe he was just drunk and wandered off and fell asleep somewhere and then got lost and couldn't find his way back? 
In the case of a man who deserted as when he was a prisoner of war, many, many, many of the British soldiers who were prisoners of war escaped from captivity and made their way back into British ranks. Well, because they left their, their own men when they were in captivity, they're classified as deserters. Technically, that's desertion. They left. But when they then pop up within their own lines again and say, hey, I'm here to join the ranks, they're pardoned for that. Like, okay, you deserted, but we kind of see you did it for a good reason. You escaped as a prisoner of war, and now you want to be a soldier again. We're okay with that. So usually those men weren't put on trial. Here and there they were, and they came right out. This was what we'll call an honorable desertion. But it was very much on a case-by-case -case basis. If the man had a pretty good reason why he deserted, and he generally didn't seem to be a discipline problem, he was liable to be pardoned. But if he was a repeat offender or had other circumstances that made it look like he was just a malevolent character, he'd be able to be executed for it. That's, that's going to catch your attention. Um, John Breen asked about the British soldiers bringing their families from England to America or traveling with their families. Can you talk a bit more about that? Who were they and what were the families? I can talk way too much about that. Oddly enough, this book doesn't talk very much about families because there was too much to say and I couldn't fit it in. And I do have another book in the works about British army wives and families in, the, in America during the revolution. There's that much to be said about it. It can fill a whole book. Um, but to keep it short, the British army was trying to recruit career soldiers to send overseas for extended periods of time, seven, eight, nine years at a time. If you want to have career soldiers and you want to deploy them to all corners of the globe, you'd better be prepared to have their dependents go with them. Now, if you're familiar with the American military today, this shouldn't be too surprising. If a soldier gets deployed to Germany or Japan or Korea, there's a pretty good chance he'll be able to take his family with him under, under the right circumstances. So the army during this time period had the same idea. It was an army of empire looking for career soldiers to send overseas for extended periods of time. And they made accommodations for wives to live sometimes in barracks. Wives might take their own private lodgings outside of um, in the area where the army is. Women could work for the army in... Um, jobs that supported the military infrastructure. For example, soldiers' wives often worked as nurses in military hospitals. Um, they worked in a job called being a sutler, which is somebody who purveys provisions that are not part of the normal army provision system. And they could, a woman could get a license to sell things to the army. Um, they worked as washerwomen or laundresses an, an essential task as part of the British military infrastructure. So yeah, it's a, it's a big subject. Don't have enough time to go into it. There are a lot of instances on my blog about military wives and the situations they ran into. And hopefully within the next 10 years, I'll have a book about that for you. All right, we'll look forward to that. Uh, Donna Lane Nelson has asked a series of questions about sort of the daily life of soldiers. Uh, often, I imagine our picture is based on things like MASH. But did British soldiers in this period have a mess hall? What were their barracks like? How many people were crowded into a barrack? Did they have a special infirmary? Um, these are terrific questions. And I, I have to just say, that's what this book is about. That's the whole reason I wrote this book is to answer all those questions. And you really got to read the book if you want to know these things. It would be way too much to try to answer here. Um, but yeah, this book will tell you in great detail how soldiers lived, what they ate, how much free time they had, what they did in their free time, what they did when they were on duty, all of these things. That's, that's why I wrote this book. They okay. this question. All right. Um, Catherine Nettesheim asked, were there any free black men recruited or impressed into the British army in this period? Okay, well. I'll, I'll say with impressment, no, because that wasn't legal in general. And even during the short period of impressment, I don't know of any free black men who were impressed. Impressment occurred only in the British Isles. Um, were there any recruited in the British Army? The answer is yes, not very many, but a few. Most of the 
And I'll say it's a two-part question here. This book is about the British regular army regiments. During the American War, a whole lot of British regiments and corps and companies and other military organizations were created just for service in the war. And a lot of free blacks were in those organizations created just for service during the war. Many of them doing military engineering tasks, which means manual labor, building fortifications, repairing roads, other non-glamorous things like that. But many of these men were escaped slaves who then joined the British army and were promised their freedom when the war ended. And many of them got their freedom by taking this path. So sort of a menial set of jobs in the army compared to common soldiering, but there's a great benefit from doing it. Within the ranks of the red-coated regiments, there were not very many blacks. Most of the ones who were there were drummers or fifers, um, but we, and not very much data available. I do talk a little bit about it in the book, but most of the free blacks who served in America during the war were in these loyalist or in these temporary organizations raised just for service during the time of the war. Okay, I've got two more questions left. Uh, one is from Karen Fox, who uh, asked about the 22nd Regiment in 1783. You've talked about how many of them, I think, re-enlisted. Uh, and she was asking, were those men entitled to 100 acres of land if they uh, left the army? Uh, would that be land in Canada? Can you speak generally to the question of the land bounties? And again, the book talks a lot more about this, but early in the war, in, in December of 1775, fighting broke out, remember, in April of 1775. It took a little while to become clear, is this going to be a big war, or is this just a little temporary flare-up? How are we going to fight this? By December of 1775, it was apparent that, yeah, this is a real war. We're in this for the long haul. We're, we need more men. We have to give more recruiting incentives. So one of those recruiting incentives was a land grant if you enlisted in the army after December 16th, 1775, and served for at least three years. Clearly by 1783, the men had served for at least three years. Now at the time the law was put into effect in 1775, the thinking was probably that these men are gonna get a land grant in New York or Pennsylvania or Virginia. By the time the war ended, this is no longer an option. So the land grants end up being for the British regular soldiers in Nova Scotia. Loyalist soldiers got a lot of land grants in um, New Brunswick and Ontario. But most of the British regulars at the, in 1783 got their land grants in Nova Scotia. Um, again, 100 acres of land entirely free. It was an option that the soldier could choose. So some soldiers who met the criteria for being discharged and getting land grants just re-enlisted instead of taking the land grant. Some soldiers went back to Great Britain and applied for pensions, but some, a few hundred, took these land grants, about 800 or so altogether, I think. I don't have an exact figure. Took land grants, they went to the town of Shelburne, and then from there, over the next several years, surveying went on, and they, they moved to different parts of the Nova, Nova Scotia coastline. The book has some individual stories just to show the differences and how that went for some men. But that's it in a nutshell. Okay. And our last question comes from Sarah Peters, who wants to ask, ask you to speak to your research process. Uh, what were your main sources? What archives did you work in? What were the su surprises? What were the big frustrations? Oh, boy. Well, and, you know, the big frustration is always that we don't have more because we just want more, more, more. You know, what, what I would really like is to know the story of every single soldier who served here because they're all individual people and they're all fascinating stories. I do most of my research using British military sources because there, there's a few um, what I would call underlying sources that are needed to support all the other information. So we have documents called muster rolls that give this list of the names of all the soldiers and just basically when they joined the army and how long they stayed in it. We have pension data that gives us some background for those men who received pensions. It tells us the men's ages and uh, 
what trade they had before they joined the army and some other good demographic details. Those are the main sources. They're in the British National Archives. I spent a lot of time in, in the British National Archives, both looking at those at that kind of data and also just trolling around, hoping I can find other things. Because after you have this basic knowledge of a man's name, and then maybe some demographic data, what you'd really like is some things about particular things that happened to him that didn't happen to anybody else. And that information has to come up by chance. Sometimes great people like J.L. Bell here will contact me and say, I just found this deposition by a guy from Massachusetts who talked about a British soldier who did this, that, and the other thing. And that's wonderful for me because now I have more than just a name and maybe a place of birth. I have something that happened, something the person was involved in. So then I can go back to all my very basic data records and say, oh, I know that person. Oh, he was this guy and he joined the army at that time and he served for that long. And then together we put together a real story about somebody or at least a story about one event in their lives. And, and the people now have some texture around it. So the answer is, I guess we, we spend a lot of time hanging around in dusty archives. You know, I, I would go to England two or three times a year and people say, wow, where did you go? And I say, well, I went to a library and I sat inside the entire time because that's what I find really exciting in England when other people are out looking at London Bridge and riding the Ferris wheel and eating these pies and things. Um, but it's the analogy is doing sort of research. It's like trying to do a 20,000 piece jigsaw puzzle when you have to go out and find each individual piece and you don't know what the picture is going to look like. You just have to keep trying to find pieces and hope they fit together and you always have little bits of it that look nice and you have to see where it goes.